wrong with that unless it gets you so out of balance that it becomes what defines you. Today we want to talk about being beautiful outlaws and a powerful humility, which is not being displayed on the screen right now. Have you, ever, have, have you seen those guys now? I, I don't know when this started in the NFL. It used to be about the hard work and the victory as a team and all that kind of stuff. And now you cannot see a sack without, without somebody having to put on a little dance and show. Have you noticed that? Am I, am I, I find that despicable. I, I find it despicable. You know, given their playing time, they're probably being paid $25,000 for that sack. Get back in the huddle and get to work, you know, is what I'm thinking. I, 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 people who have won the Nobel Prize have more humility, you know, but, you know, well, whatever it is, you know, each one's got their own signature move. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we live in a culture that promotes the performance. But that, that same thrill that we get when the attention's on us and the spotlight is there and we're being honored is also very fickle. It also robs us of every sense of self-worth. If we're putting all our weight on that, it, it robs us of our, our, of our sense of self and our worth when the applause stops. And, and the results are tragic. One of the most loved, most powerful NFL players ever, Junior Seau, would be just such an example. Tragic results. When we put all our weight on what others think about us, we're asking, really, uh, to, to have our confidence, to have our sense of worth, to have our value attacked again and again and again. It's a, it's a horrible position in, in which really to, to put ourselves. The Scriptures call uh, this vice vainglory. You know, it's, it's kind of an old-timey word, vainglory. But, but here's what it means. Definition of vainglory would be the need to have others think well of us in order to feel worthy. The need to have others think well of us in order to feel worthy. There's nothing wrong with having others think well of us. But when it comes to uh, define us rather than just refine us, we've got our weight tragically uh, on something that will likely crumble beneath us. Impressing others uh, for our own sense of, of self-worth. It, 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 can, it can backfire on us. Do you, you remember the uh, Kansas City uh, papers uh, shared this story of um, Paul Newman. He was, he was in town doing a movie. And they shared the story of a lady who, who walked in to get some of her favorite yogurt. And as, as she walked up to get, her, get the yogurt, this, this blue-eyed man turned around, and she realized she was standing behind Paul Newman in line. <gasps> she didn't breathe. She almost fainted about two minutes later. She, she, he was, she was in his presence, you know. And uh, she's standing in line, and she's, she's trying to be cool about this. You know, she's not, she's not going to be one of those effervescent fans that makes a fool of herself and everything. So she's trying to compose herself as her heart's pounding out of her chest, you know, make a good impression. And then she's standing in line and so forth, and she, she sees him get to his yoga, and he turns and very graciously, you know, nods at her. And, oh, you know, she almost faints right then. And she, she pays for her, for her yogurt and starts to, 
to leave. And on her way out, you know, she, she acknowledges him again. <laughs> Newman, just talk to me. You know, she's, she's completely thrilled as she walks out, only to realize as, as she gets outside the yogurt place, she, she forgot her treat. You know, so she goes back inside and starts arguing with the lady at the checkout. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, I left my yogurt here. She says, no, ma'am, we, get, we gave you your yogurt. No, obviously, I don't have my yogurt, so I must have left my yogurt here. And then to her absolute horror, she feels a tap on her shoulder. She turns around, it's Paul Newman. And he says, madam, I think you'll find your ice cream in your purse. And when we put uh, that much emphasis on the impression we're making on someone else, it can often come to backfire on us. Uh, Christ warns us of that kind of imbalance in our lives because it can so often trick, uh, trip us up. Why, why is it that we each, almost every one of us, knows what it is to, to be tempted towards vainglory? Who can identify with that? From our parents, we've been praised when we did well, and it made us feel significant. Our, our teachers gave us grades, and if there were good grades, they added to our self-esteem. If they, if they were poor grades, sometimes they, they robbed us of that. Coaches e- either gave or took away our sense of worth by whether or not we got the MVP trophy. Bosses, promotions, and bonuses either were ours or they were passed by us and If there were no messages intended, there were still nevertheless messages received. We know what it is to value and so often overvalue the appraisals of others. What what in us makes us be that way? Well, if the definition is a clue, the need to have others think well of us in order to feel worthy, then I think sometimes what's going on is that lack of feeling worthy that drives that insatiable hunger and need. We turn to others' applause or appreciation or validation to, to fill our doubtful heart of the affirmation we need. And, and the sad thing is the way that uh, restricts us from being available to our true selves and being available to others and even being available to God. There's a clear picture of it in John chapter 13. Do you remember what's going on there? Turn there with me if you have your scriptures this morning. I, w- I want to point out some things that, uh, in this familiar story that we may have overlooked. John chapter 13 is a, is a uh, moment in the upper room. The disciples have come in. Many say that they were arguing about who was the greatest, who had made the best impression. You know, uh, that's what was going on as they came to this room. And this is a story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It seems that in that moment of, of self-exaltation and, and pride and, and uh, uh, the victory dance of one disciple comparing himself to another as the one that was most important, most to be applauded, that they completely lost track of Jesus or they would have probably seen him going for the basin and the towel, the servant's task, the lowly one's duty to do. But not until he had already girded himself with the towel and picked up the basin to wash their feet 
did they seem to even notice they were so self-absorbed? But, but Jesus somehow was not needing that self-validation. You know what I'm saying? He, or he would have been as sensitive as everyone else to, well, I'm not going to wash your feet because if I wash your feet, that means you're more important than me. All right? So I've, you know, if, I, if I've got the argument for the fact that I'm the greatest, don't find me on a knee here, right? But for some reason, Jesus, the greatest one in the room, hands down, no argument there among anyone, was the one who didn't need the affirmation. It was consistent with Jesus' attitude from the very beginning of the incarnation to the end. Though he was God, he didn't hold equality with God, a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant and even becoming a man and even learning obedience even to the point of death upon a cross. It's one of the earliest hymns of the church. You'll find it in Philippians chapter 2. That kind of attitude was, was his natural kind of uh, personality with people. Something interesting has happened here. Why is Jesus the one that's free to serve instead of the other twelve who probably should have been the first ones prompted to serve. If you look in chapter, uh, verse 3 of that chapter, you'll find an extraordinary clue. And it reads something like this. Jesus, knowing where he had come from and who he was returning to, picked up a towel and a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Could it be when our hearts long for vain glory that we've forgotten who we've come from and who we're going to? Could it be that we've forgotten who it is that defines our worth? The disciples were concerned about who they might be discovered serving. Jesus knew whom he served. The King of glory. God Almighty. And it was his joy. He'd rather be a servant in that palace than, uh, than rule himself. The devil had tried to tempt him that way. There were times when people came to Jesus and tried to flatter him. Do you remember that moment in the Scripture where someone approaches Jesus and they say, Good teacher, would you tell us? And Jesus almost interrupts them mid-sentence. Who are you calling good? There's no one good but one. And he points to his Father, the sinless Son of God. <laughs> if anybody had the right to be called good, he's in the front of the line, right? He wasn't saying that he wasn't good. What was Jesus doing? Listen, the people that are most tempted, and Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, this is a whole new concept for me with Jesus, so I'm, tr I'm trying this on for size this morning, but I think this is something the Lord showed me last night. If, if This is one of those strange vices that requires a virtue, right? And, and unless you know there's something about you to appreciate, you don't suffer from vainglory. You're not tempted to it. In, in fact, uh, the only thing that, that bothers a person that's infected with vainglory more than failing in front of other people is doing something really great and there being nobody around to watch. 
right? Vainglory is a, is a peculiar kind of animal in that it requires a certain level of righteousness and goodness and something to be applauded, even to be tempted to it. And if Jesus was infinitely good, I would bet, I would just bet that vainglory might have been that which could have tempted him most. That's what the devil tempted him with. I've always thought that when Jesus said after he healed somebody, and you be sure you don't go tell anybody else about this, I, I had always just, we, there's no explanation for that in Scripture anywhere. And he tells people over and over again. He incredibly impacts their lives, and then he says, oh, and let's keep this between you and me. Again and again and again. He, he serves in secret. Was Jesus practicing what he taught us when he when he said when you pray to the father don't do so so that others might see you because if you do then you have your reward but go and pray in secret to your father and your father who sees in secret will reward you now jesus isn't trying to encourage that same selfish little miserly heart that wants a reward if i can't get it from people i'll go get it from god what he's saying i think is this he's not telling us not to pray he says when you pray in that passage in matthew chapter 6 when you pray do it this way do it secretly and not for the notice of people so that your experience of prayer will not be the minute reward of fickle people saying i think you're holy i'm impressed with your spirituality but rather, your prayer is a sharing of intimacy with God who sees, who knows. He says, and when you give, don't do so with a bunch of fanfare so everybody else will notice. And he says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. You know, just do it. And, and don't worry about the applause because you don't have an audience of many, as the Puritans say, you have a continual audience of one, right? He, he, he wasn't even, he, he wasn't saying don't give. He wasn't saying money was bad. He wasn't saying that it's wrong to, acknowledge a, to be acknowledged for a gift that you've been given. He, he was not talking about the form of the outward practice all through the Sermon on the Mount. And even here, Jesus is still talking about the inner attitude of the heart that can either make those things wonderful expressions that connect you to God or can make those things completely bankrupt in serving your own ego. You with me? Vainglory. It can rob us of so much. And I, I think Jesus' secret was this, that he knew where he had come from. He had come from God. He knew he was going to God. Let me frame it this way. I, didn't, I don't think this was just talking about the exit and return to heaven, as dramatic as that was. Could it be that this is also talking about he had just come from his father moments earlier? He didn't have a need to boost his own ego. He had just been in conversation with the Lord of glory who was still saying to him, you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. You know, was that still echoing in his spirit when he spent time with his father? No wonder he had nothing to prove that night in the upper room, right? We're, we're all susceptible 
uh, to vainglory. It's, it's difficult for any of us. It's difficult, uh, um, especially for those of us who are in ministry, to continue to serve without the accolades, without the attaboys, without uh, being appreciated. So this isn't just about some esoteric attitude of the heart. This is about the heart that endures, that keeps serving, because we know where we come from, and we know where we're going to. That not only is intimacy with our Father our motivation, but the validation of our Father our reward. He sees. He knows. If we'll come on down a little bit, I, there, there's a little diagram here at the bottom of, uh, of this place. Uh, there it is. One more click. Of which are you more conscious? Again, God smile, other smile. That question hit me right between the eyes. If you're a people person especially, I consider myself one of those animals. If you're a people person, it's easy for me all day long to want to crack a joke, to want to turn things light, to want to have a little humor in the room. Unless you're catching me in one of those hyper-focused moments, and I can be that way too, but... I seem so sensitive to whether others around me are smiling. But, it, but it's embarrassingly rare how often the motivations of what I'm doing is formed in and formed from intimacy with God and having asked Him, Lord, what can I do that could make you smile? What would bring you delight in the way I treat this next person that's coming into my office? What would give you delight as we sit down here for lunch today and uh, we have the um, captivated audience of a waiter or, or a waitress? What could that look like? If you want to really know what you're worth, don't look into the eyes of others. Now, that doesn't mean you don't pay attention to others or you don't receive feedback from others. You're, you're not living as an island. You're just not letting what they say define you. It can refine you. It can awaken you. Someone once said, if uh, someone calls you uh, a horse's behind, ignore them. And if two people call you a horse's behind, pay attention. If three people call you a horse's behind, buy a saddle. You know, they're... It doesn't mean that we're oblivious to feedback in the world around us. But it does mean that we have this radical kind of outlaw freedom that frees us to be who we are and whose we are and not to be shackled by the opinions and the impressions that we make on those around us. Have you ever known somebody with this kind of freedom? I have. I've known a few people with this kind of freedom, and they are an absolute delight to be around. 
One of them's a ministry friend. He came to town recently and spent a little time with Dad. Uh, I've preached for him down in, in Altus at the church where he serves there. His name is David Player. I often call him Gary Player. That's the golfer. His real name's David Player. How many of you know David? Anybody know David? Six foot five fella from South, South Africa. Yes. And he has that African resonance in his voice, you know. And uh, I love going to ministers' conferences because David is completely self-forgetful, you know. And the first time I, I, I saw him, he was so boisterous and so outgoing, I thought, who is this arrogant so-and-so, you know? This guy's got a real touchdown dance already worked up, you can tell. But no, I completely misread him. I, I love to be at ministers' conferences, and we'll be sitting down front, and he's already six foot five, right? And in the midst of something, he'll just raise his hands up over his head. Praise Jesus! And he'll say, you know, and there's, there's David being David again. He doesn't care, doesn't care what we think about him. He's just loving on Jesus. This, this, this man is so free, it's scary. You can go to lunch with him, and there is absolutely no telling what he's going to say to the waitress or other people around you. He is just free to love Jesus and invite you along for the party. You ever been around somebody like that? They're absolute delight, a little scary, but an absolute delight. He did with my dad this last week what, what he did, that has done so many times with me when we're out to eat. Somebody, you know, it might not even be our waiter. Hello, dear. You're having a difficult day. You're downcast. Let me ask you, is there anything we can pray about that Lord Jesus cares so dearly for you? <laughs> and he doesn't say it so the waitress will hear it. He says it so the whole section will hear it. You know what I'm saying? And he doesn't care if it's just the waitress that hears it. He would love to get up and go around and pray for everybody in the section. It wouldn't, wouldn't phase him a bit. He doesn't care if people think he's crazy. I watched him this last week in a minister's meeting. You know, we can be a really proud bunch. Six or seven hundred of us in a room. We'd been getting insights on how to make the church more effective, you know, and all of us were looking at each other and saying, yeah, 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 I already knew that. Uh, yeah, I knew that. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, he's on to something there. Yeah, you know, it was, it was that kind of a ministerial, if you've ever been in that crowd, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you extra. And, 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 David, David gets up before this entire congregation of ministers, and, and he's one of the best among us, right? Serving one of our best churches in Altus, and he comes to the platform, and he says, you know, I'm so burdened. I'm so burdened because I'm hearing so many ideas of how to make the church more effective, and there's so little of me to go around. And he says, I look back at the churches where I have served for many years, and I did the very best I could, and yet I still know of people who are faithful in those churches that are yet to fall in love with Jesus. And he starts weeping before these peers. He says, it breaks my heart. You ever known someone with that kind of humility? If we hadn't been so proud we would have given him a standing ovation. Many of us clapped uncharacteristically when he finished his, his little confession. And it was just between him and the speaker. He didn't care if there were seven other people in the room. It could have been President Obama. He would treat him the same way. You know what I'm saying? That kind of power, that kind of authenticity, 
Uh, it's such a witness, isn't it? I long to have that kind of humility and to have that kind of freedom from, from vain glory. How many of you saw the Billy Graham uh, special this week? Anybody see that? I was uh, actually saved myself at a Billy Graham crusade in 1972, Fulton County Stadium, two-thirds of the way over on the left side of the stage. Nine years of age. Something about the way he presented the gospel and challenged so clearly and practically gathered up all the convictions of my little heart and I went down front and when I was asked why I was coming, as a nine-year-old would, I said in those terms, well, my mommy loves me and I love her back. My dad loves me and I love him back. And I know Jesus loves me. And I want to love him back. It wasn't profound, but it was authentic. Something about that man had resonated with me, and that wasn't just my experience. It's been the experience of so many others. And the thing that makes, I think, Billy Graham's witness so powerful is not the cleverness of his sermons. Not, not, not the uh, wisdom and the articulation with which he speaks. I think there's probably four or five preachers right here in Broken Arrow that are more articulate. But there's something about that man that is so real. His heart has a trueness and a resonance about it. They asked his, his grandson, who's now in the ministry, assuming, you know, that it was probably motivated by some vainglory that he himself was now following a... Uh, Daddy Bill's footsteps that uh, they asked him. They said, "Well, uh, was it was it because you were so in, in, inspired by your uh, Daddy Bill that that you decided to become a minister? Did he ever tell you to be a pastor?" He said, "No. He he never told any of us that. Never pressured any of us that way. He he never influenced you to uh, become a pastor." He said, "Oh no, I didn't say that." I, but his influence was his life, not just his words. He made it very clear that he was completely comfortable just being himself. But he dearly, dearly loved Christ. And he never expected anything of us that we really be ourselves, warts and all. And he longed for us to come to love Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians says. Then it talks about him emptying himself, becoming humble, obedient even to the point of death on a cross. But have you ever looked carefully at what precedes it in Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there be any encouragement in Christ, have this attitude. The attitude comes from knowing where you come from. 
And it's coming from the unconditional love, validation of your heavenly Father. Greg Luganus was a, a great Olympic athlete. Many people know that he suffered from uh, the high expectations of really perfection that was expected of him as a diver in the Olympics. And probably few have grown to achieve that level of performance quite like Greg did. And when asked one time how he kept from folding under that pressure under each dive, how he could push himself to tens after tens in his competition and some of the most serious competition that there was, he said when he got on the board, he always had the same routine. And the first thing he said as he took a deep breath at the back of the board was this, it doesn't matter if I hit this dive or if I blow this dive. My mother loves me. And he took a big exhale, and he gave it his best. That was his secret. When you serve, do you know where you're coming from? Do you know who you're doing it for? Where you're coming from and where you're going to. The beautiful outlaw himself taught us how to break out of the world's mold and to become our true selves with him. You up for doing some of that this week? Here's your assignment. Here's your outlaw out of the box, not going to be the same anymore, exercise for the week. I'm not saying you have to do this the rest of your life, but I want you to try it on for size three times this week. What's the antidote for not doing things for others notice, Jesus gives it clearly to us right there in Matthew 6. He says, do it in secret. Do it in secret. Just, just take out that part of the equation and do it anyway. Now, we've added to that equation. It's not just not doing it for the notice of others and doing it secretly. What is it? It's doing it out of an intimate relationship with God where that deed or that service or that thing is inspired and putting a smile on his face and a smile on yours as you do it, however that person ever responds or not. If you can learn to serve in that kind of dynamic with God in secret, you will be insulated from the heart-robbing liabilities of vainglory. You'll be shaped by your Father not shaped by other people's opinions and what they think of you. You'll be free like Gary Player. I mean Gary Player. David Player. <laughs> See, I do, I do it all the time. Oh, here are the rules. Uh, to, to keep this thing working in the way that we want it to, n- number one, first of all, do it from a place of inspiration with God. Start, start your day. I want you to try to do this three times in the next week. Have a moment where you say, God, for the people in my office, for the people in my house, wherever, wherever you are, say, Lord, what's something that I could do for someone else that would put a smile on your face? Number two, do it secretly. And number three, do it in Christ, motivated by him and validated by him. Right? Okay, start it with him. Do it in secret. Do it for the reward of celebrating being more like him.
however that other person responds. Now, if that other person happens to find out, you know, kids, if you make your parents' bed, uh, husbands, if you do a load of laundry, uh, if someone in the house discovers that it was you, it's the heart attitude that we're shaping here. Don't lie about it and say, no, it wasn't me. All right? That's not the point. If you get discovered, you get discovered. That's, that's, that's no big deal. You know why? Because if they discover it or not, that's not your reward. Right? So if you get discovered, just say, yeah, it's a little something I wanted to do. No big deal. Okay? You with me? So this isn't about secret and cunning. All right? It's about, it's about being in touch with the attitude of your heart. As you try three times this week to serve someone else, lift someone else's burden secretly, okay? Without any attention given to yourself, without any signature that it's from you, right? Love because he's loved you and because it gives you delight to love with him, someone else, all right? And if we can learn that heart posture. The power of us as vessels and agents in this world for Christ rises exponentially because we're not sitting there in the upper room saying, well, you get the towel. No, you get the towel. I'm not getting the towel. You get the towel. And we, we, we're free of that, right? We're free to just do what our heart in loving abandon wants to do for someone else. What a great way to live. I want more David player in me. I want more of the Jesus in David player in me, right? Think about this. Think about how getting out of your own way empowers the way you live for Christ. That humility is a powerful thing. Angel tree. Angel tree. If, if you can get enough out of your own way to go and buy, what is it, $25 gift? I forget what the limit is. 20 whatever it is. To go get a gift... Pay for it yourself, right? But be free enough of vainglory that you can give, some, give it to someone else. You bought that present. Not that incarcerated parent that's off in prison somewhere. You bought that present, right? Resist the temptation to say, you know, this present I bought, I did so on behalf of your father. Right? But if you in humility will get yourself out of the way. What's left in view but that child seeing a gift from their father, from their mother, right? And and we're going to do that this Christmas with a $20 gift. But you can do that all the time. You can give a gift And if you get out of the way, all that's left is a message to that child from their father. Let's weed that out of our hearts. Let's cultivate a garden that blooms and gives glory to God. May people say because of our lives, not, wow, what an impressive person. But man, would I love to know their God. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you this morning that 